Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in the sixth verse. But now hath he, that is Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry. More excellent than what? Well, then the priests under the old covenant, then the sons of Levi. Jesus is a minister of the new covenant, as he's going to tell us. He has a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now as we begin to think about this subject this morning, I think it's important to review at least two things that we've learned so far in our study of the book of Hebrews. We've learned that this book draws heavily from the Old Testament. You can't understand the book of Hebrews unless you're familiar with the Old Testament. You know, there are Christian people who never read the Old Testament. All they read is the New Testament. And those people are going to be confused when they hear John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God. Because that idea has no meaning unless you understand the role that lambs played in the Old Testament. And there are also Christian people today who camp out in the Old Testament and really spend very little time in the New. And they are basically still under the law, proclaiming a message of salvation by works, by man's obedience. That's the Old Testament. And therefore, it's important for us to see when we come to the book of Hebrews that this is the most Old Testament of all the New Testament books. And perhaps the most important thing that Hebrews makes clear is that Jesus Christ is the theme of the whole Bible, the Old Testament as well as the New. In the Old Testament, he's predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In the Acts, he is preached. In the Epistles, he's explained. In the book of Revelation, he is anticipated and expected. And this idea is called the unity of the Bible. The Bible is a book of one story. So instead of being an encyclopedia in which you have a little bit of information about a great many different subjects, the Bible is a book with a common thread 
Jesus Christ and him crucified is the theme of the Bible. So we've learned that in the book of Hebrews. We've also learned in this book, number two, that this theme of the person and work of Christ is developed progressively in Scripture. That is, as you start reading your Bible, you get little glimpses of the coming Redeemer. Remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? God clothed them with animal skins after they sinned. Do you remember? And suddenly you see that shedding of blood is something that God requires for atonement and substitution, an innocent substituting for the guilty. That's God's program for atonement. And then you see Abraham taking Isaac up on top of Mount Moriah. And you learn that when Isaac is spared and the ram caught by his horns in the thicket is offered in the place of Isaac, you learn Again, the principle of substitution, that one dies in the place of another, and you see a picture of the cross. And as the Old Testament unfolds, the developing theme is finally realized when Jesus, God's Son, assumes our nature, and he comes to the earth to die in our place. So this principle is called progressive revelation. What has been building through the Old Testament now is culminated with the coming of Christ in the New Testament. So you have these two ideas, the unity of the Bible and progressive revelation, and we see both of those thoughts developed in the book of Hebrews. And this passage that we've read in your hearing this morning reveals that the key that unlocks the two testaments is this idea of the covenant. The concept of covenants is the key that unlocks the meaning of the Bible. You say, I don't understand the Bible, then study the covenants. Because if you can understand this idea, it will be a key to understanding. Now, God has always transacted business with people by means of covenants. You might ask, Brother Mike, what is a covenant? Well, it's a solemn agreement or a pact that binds at least two parties together in a legal relationship of commitment. Marriage is one of the most common examples of a covenant relationship. What happens at a wedding? Well, two parties give themselves away, and legally they bind themselves in a permanent relationship as husband and wife, right? We say things like this, we're gathered here in the presence of God, and these witnesses. Why do we invoke the presence of God? Because uh, this is a divine arrangement. You see, it's a binding agreement. And vows, promises are taken, aren't they? What's the significance of that? Well, they are pledging, promising fidelity or allegiance to the other party, assuming the obligations imposed in the covenant upon themselves to be the right person. And if they will both keep their promises, then that arrangement can be a very beneficial and fulfilling arrangement, right? The covenant of marriage. Marriage is more than just a piece of paper. It's a covenant that involves a lifelong commitment that legally binds two people together so that they're no longer two separate entities but one flesh in the sight of God. We also are familiar with covenants when we take a mortgage out on a, maybe a home or we take a loan on a new automobile. We sign a, an agreement and we promise to make payments for a certain period of time. 
And you say, well, what is the benefit to the lender? Well, they're getting some interest. So you're getting a benefit, they're getting a benefit, and as long as both parties hold up that agreement, it's a legally binding agreement, and if any party breaches the contract, then they can be sued at a court of law. So God has always transacted business with mankind by means of covenants. Now, God is greater than us. Would you agree with that? He's a holy God. And men are not only mortals, but we are sinful mortals. And you say, well, who would take the first step to initiate such a relationship between God and sinful men? God, my friends, is the one who has decided to enter into covenant with mankind. Here's a question then that I want you to ask. How many covenants has God made with men in the Bible? And the answer to that question is in one sense, you could say there are many covenants in the Bible. First of all, there's a covenant that he made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Hosea chapter 6 verse 7 actually calls that arrangement a covenant. And God gave Adam free access to every tree in the garden except for one. And he says, you may benefit from my creation except one tree is off limits. That was the stipulation of the covenant. It was a covenant, very straightforward covenant in which blessings were promised if he obeyed the covenant and punishments were threatened in the event of his disobedience. And uh, somebody says, well, uh, Brother Mike, uh, did Adam keep that covenant of works? And it was a covenant of pure works, wasn't it? Did Adam keep it? And the answer is no, he disobeyed the covenant. God then held Adam accountable for that. And in the day that he ate thereof, he died a death in trespasses and in sins. So that was a covenant that God made with mankind through their federal head, Adam. Then in Genesis chapter 9, we see that God made a covenant with Noah. Remember after the flood, after the deluge, God promised that he would never again flood the earth as long as the earth remained seed time and harvest, summer and winter, cold and heat, day and night would not cease. That's Genesis 8.22. And then in Genesis 9, God said, I'll give you a token of the covenant. And what was the seal or the emblem that represented God's promise to be true to his word, it was the rainbow that God put in the sky, the bow in the clouds, which every time you see that bow, you will remember that God is true to his word. So that's a covenant that God made with Noah. Then in Genesis 15, God enters into a covenant with Abraham, and God told Abraham to take animals, a bullock and a lamb and a turtle dove and a pigeon and a he-goat and to divide them in two. So I want you to cut the animal into two pieces. Lay one piece over here and one piece over here and have a passageway like our building is arranged this morning with pews over here, pews over here, a passage through the middle. And God came down in the form of a burning lamp and a smoking furnace fire and smoke, which are theophanies, or divine manifestations of the presence of God, and God passed between those pieces. You say, what does the symbolism mean? God is saying, may this be done to me if I don't keep my promise to Abraham. 
In other words, it's a blood covenant. God is saying, I'm willing to put my life on the line in order to verify that I will keep my word. And by the way, that's what the cross actually was. God put his life on the line. When the Lord Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, laid down his life, and he was slain so that the promise that God made to his people before time began would come to pass. And then in Exodus 24, 7, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments in the law. And it says Moses read the book of the covenant to the people. After God gave him the law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, Moses then read the book of the covenant to the people. And God promised to bless the people if they would do their part. And he promised that he would curse the people if they disobeyed the law. So we have the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And then there's a covenant God made with David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Whenever David wanted to build a house for God, the Lord said, no, I'm not going to allow you to build a house for me, but I will build you a house. And God makes promises that David's sons would sit on the throne as kings, that his dynasty would never end. And David, when he came to the end of his life, said this in 2 Samuel 23, 5, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. And this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he maketh it not to grow. And by the way, that's a truth good enough to die by. Those are the last words of David. And when he said, although my life hasn't turned out like I thought it would, my house is not everything it should be. Although my house be not so with God, yet my hope as I face death is this. Not that I've done everything just right and that I have everything in order, but my hope is in this, that he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. And he said, this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he makes it not to grow. That is, I don't see my dynasty... I don't see it developing right now, but I'm trusting God to be true to his word. That's the covenant that God made with David. But the Bible reveals another covenant that God made, not with men. Now, we've talked about the covenant with Adam, with Moses, with Abraham, with David, with Noah. Covenants God made promises, agreements that he made to bless and to take care of people. But there's another covenant that God made not with men, but he made, if I can say it like this, between the persons of the Godhead. And it's called the everlasting covenant. Would you turn with me if you're in the 8th chapter of Hebrews, a few chapters forward to Hebrews 13 verse 20 and listen to this. This is near the end of the book. And I want you to listen to this language. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. If you've attended Primitive Baptist churches very long, you've probably heard preachers preach about the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace, the everlasting covenant. And here you actually have that expression in Hebrews 13.20. It says, when God brought Christ from the dead, when he raised Jesus back to life after his crucifixion, he brought him from the dead on the basis of the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now notice covenants have blood associated with them. 
You know, a lot of modern Christians say we need to stop talking about the blood. That's a gory gospel. And they don't want anything to do with blood redemption. But I dare say, my friends, if you take the blood out of the gospel, you've taken the good news out of the gospel. Because without the shedding of blood, <laughs> there's no remission of sins. Hebrews is going to tell us that in the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 9. And we'll talk about that as we move into chapter 9, the importance of blood redemption. But here's the thought. The blood of the everlasting covenant. You see, God made a plan. He made an agreement. And this everlasting covenant, that's what it's called, is an agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. Now, are you aware of the fact that your Bible talks about many things that happened before the world began? You know, many people's theology only goes back as far as the Garden of Eden. They don't know anything except what Adam and Eve did in the Garden. I'm telling you, before Adam and Eve were even made, the Godhead met together in a legally binding contract. Before the fact, God decided within himself, within the Godhead, God made a plan, I call it his eternal purpose, to save fallen sinners, and to ensure their eternal happiness in glory. God did that before man ever showed up on the scene. You say, well, how did he know what was going to happen? Because he's omniscient. He knows everything before it happens. And foreseeing the fall of Adam in the garden, God made arrangements in advance to remedy the plight of a vast host of Adam's family. Certain things happened before the foundation of the world. Now, I can't preach the gospel without talking about what happened before the world began. Somebody says, well, Brother Michael, why is that important? Because had God not done that, nobody would have ever been saved. Our salvation depends upon God's plan of the ages, His eternal purpose. Listen to a few verses. Ephesians 1.4. According as God hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. On what basis will any human being ever stand before God holy and blameless? Only on the basis of the fact that God chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, he didn't choose you or me because we were lovely or we were Worthy of such a choice? God chose us, my friends, unconditionally. The Bible teaches the doctrine of unconditional election. That is the idea that God made choice of a people before the world even began. Out of Adam's fallen race, God looked down and he saw the fallen lump of humanity and he chose a vast portion of them as his own. And it wasn't a random choice, it was a very personal choice. For Jesus says, your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice that your names. It's not a demographic. God didn't choose all white people or all black people or all, you know, brown people or whatever. He didn't choose people of a certain family. He chose a people out of every nation and kindred and people and tongue. That's what Revelation 5 verse 9 says. The redeemed in heaven are singing this song, Thou art worthy. Isn't it interesting the song of heaven is not the preacher's worthy or I'm worthy, but it's Christ is worthy. Thou art worthy. 
All glory goes to the Lamb of God in that place. Thou art worthy, for thou was slain. Why is he worthy? Because he paid the price. He was slain and hast redeemed us. Through his death, he redeemed us to God by his blood, it says, out of every nation and kindred and people and tongue. Now, whatever family you want to think about, Jesus has a people out of that family. You say, here's my ancestry. Well, God has people in your ancestry. Out of every tongue that is language. You know, there are a bunch of different languages spoken on planet Earth. There's Portuguese and Swahili and Chinese and French and German and Latin and English and many others. I'm telling you, God has a people out of every tongue, out of every nation, whatever political background. Here's this country and that country. Here's this form of government. Here's that one. Here's an oligarchy. Here's of aristocracy, here is a democracy, here is communism, here is a socialistic form of government, here is a dictatorship. God has people out of every nation, out of every people, out of every ethnicity. Whatever their skin color, whatever their ethnic heritage is, God has people, my friends. And it's a vast host. And the reason they're his is because he had a covenant. And he chose us. Not on the basis of anything good in us, but in Christ he chose us. That is, he placed us in his son. He chose us on the basis of what Jesus would come and do for us on the cross. This is what we're talking about when we speak of the covenant. And that happened when? Before the foundation of the world. You say, well, that's the only mention of that phrase in the Bible. I beg to differ. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God who hath saved us and called us. Now, who did the saving? God did. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. I love this doctrine of grace, this doctrine of the everlasting covenant, because it gives all the glory to God. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 is another verse that teaches the same thing when it says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Paul, what do you preach? He says, here's what I preach. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Not man's wisdom, but God's wisdom. God is the one who came up with this elaborate plan. And it's a fail-proof plan. And it will come to pass just as he arranged it to come to pass. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world. There it is. Unto our glory. What will finally culminate in your glorification and my glorification? What will land you in glory? It is what God purposed to do before the world began. Sometimes I hear preachers say, we had a person raise his hand and agree to be saved today, make a decision for Christ, and another name has been added to the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm telling you, my friends, you're thousands of years too late. Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8 says that those names are written in that book from the foundation of the world. As soon as the world began, those names are already there. That's why Jesus said, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. My beloved, God knows who I am and he knows who you are. He knows who all of his people are, whether they're behind the iron curtain of communism or the bamboo curtain of oppression and 
red China, wherever his people are in the darkest jungles of the Amazon, God knows where every one of his people are. He knows who they are. He's known them from all eternity past in the person of his son. And none can possibly pluck the sheep from his sovereign hand. Now, this is why the doctrine of the everlasting covenant is so important. It teaches that the father gave a people to his son before time began. John 6.37 says, All that the father giveth me shall come to me. Jesus says, The father gave a people to me. John 17.2, This is life eternal, that of all which thou hast given me. There it is again. I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. The covenant started with God giving a people to his son. That's called election. God chose a people and predestinated them to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God the Father did. God the Son then voluntarily agreed to assume the role of substitute for that people. Isaiah 6 verse 8 asks the question, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, speaking as it were, personifying the second person of the Trinity, said, Here am I, send me. When the Father said, Who shall go for us? Who's going to be the Redeemer? The Son of God stood up and said, I will assume that role. I'll be the mediator. I'll subordinate myself. I will put myself under orders. Now, Jesus, the Son of God, is the eternal Son of God, right? He is God, a very God. He shares the nature of the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's not a lesser God or a demigod. He is truly God, but he came to this earth and humiliated himself. He humbled himself. He stepped down the ladder. He condescended. He voluntarily put himself under obligation. That's what a mediator is. Someone who assumes the role of stepping in between God and men. Jesus Christ assumed that role. Notice our text said he's the mediator of a better covenant. And he said, I will be the substitute. Isaiah 48, 16 says, The Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. That's why in the book of John, when it says over and over again that I was sent from heaven, God sent forth his Son, that the Son was sent into the world. That expression is repeated in the Gospel of John over and again. He's talking about the Son agreeing to assume the role of substitute for the people that God had given him. Here's a good verse that will help to explain it. Galatians 4.4 4. And when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. When the promissory note became due, at the right time, the Father dispatched from heaven his Son into this world. And he came for this purpose, to redeem them. He came to redeem now, did Jesus come to make the world a better place to live? Not at all. He came to save his people from their sins. That's why he came. And here's the question, did he do it? <laughs> and uh, the good news of the gospel is that he finished the work that the Father had given him to do. So see, all of this is covenant language. The stipulations imposed. You see, when two parties are married, they both say, I promise to love, to cherish to honor, to be faithful to you, to deny myself for your benefit. And the other party does the same. And both are making promises. Well, God made a promise. Titus 1-2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. A covenant involves promises. 
It involves the assumption of obligation and the imposition of stipulations. And it involves benefits. Now you say, well, God made this covenant. Man wasn't a part of it. If God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit made the covenant, then where do we come into this picture? As the beneficiaries. You know, when you um, purchase a life insurance policy, it asks you to name your beneficiaries. Those are the folks that will receive the proceeds upon your demise. The, they benefit. Now, you've paid the premiums. You took the initiative. You entered into the contract, and you paid the premiums. You've done all the work, and they're going to get the benefits. It's a pure act of grace, isn't it? I'm telling you, dear friends, that your home in heaven and my home in heaven does not depend upon you paying part of the premium or you doing your part of the work. It depends solely on what God has done, and the only role that you and I have to play in it is we are the happy beneficiaries of his amazing grace. You see, when I get to heaven, I won't be saying God did his part and I did mine. And let's praise him for a little while, then everybody come around and praise me for a little while. That won't be the song in heaven. Every eye will be upon the lamb that was slain. All glory will go to God because salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. He planned it, he executed it, and then the Holy Spirit assumed the covenant obligation of applying the work of redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross. He regenerates all that were chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son according to Galatians 4, 6, which says, And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, whereby ye cry, Abba, Father. Now notice the Holy Spirit isn't sent out here on the corner of this street and that street, and you have to go and meet him and accept him. He's sent into your hearts. That's home delivery. That's what I call home delivery. He's sent into your hearts. I was talking with a preacher one time in my early ministry before I was as diplomatic as I am now <clears throat> and we were uh, having a discussion some folks would have called it an argument back in the day I'm not real proud of uh, the way that I conducted myself always but anyway we were discussing theology and I was arguing that salvation's a free gift a free gift and he said well brother Goins I understand but if uh, if I sent you a free gift through the post office you'd have to go down and pick it up before it would be yours you have to accept it I said, that sounds logical, but the only problem is God didn't send his free gift of salvation through the post office. He sent it into your hearts, whereby ye cry, Abba, Father. Now, you say, Brother Mike, what you're saying doesn't leave man any room to glory. You're exactly right. All glory goes to the Lord. Grace means that he did the work, he gets the credit for it, and we are the recipients of what he has done. How happy a message is. That's why the gospel's good news. Because the fact is, you never would have chosen God had he not moved toward you and taken the initiative in the first place. You and I never could have paid the price for our salvation. We couldn't have ever done enough good works to save ourselves. If salvation is not by grace because of our depraved condition by nature, heaven will be empty and a thousand hells will be filled to capacity. So what I'm saying is this covenant of redemption teaches us that salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. It's a unilateral covenant or one-sided. Now, marriage is a bilateral covenant. That's a technical term, but bi means what? Two. Lateral means sides. Bilateral, the husband says, I'll do my part. The wife says, I'll do my part. 
And as long as each does their part, then that covenant arrangement is very fulfilling. But this covenant is a unilateral covenant, the everlasting covenant. It's one-sided. That is, the stipulations for every party rest on one party alone. That's a unilateral covenant. That's what God was saying to Abraham when he parted those animal pieces and passed through. He didn't say, okay, Abraham, now I've walked through the pieces. Now you do it. God did it alone. That is the stipulations for keeping the covenant promises with Abraham rest on God's faithfulness and God's faithfulness alone. Abraham was just the passive beneficiary. The same is true, my beloved, in the everlasting covenant. God put himself on the line before time began. He obligated himself. That's why you and I don't have to fear that we will mess up our eternal destiny because God has rested the entire arrangement on his own faithfulness, not his part plus your part. All that God purposed to deliver will in fact be finally saved and finally conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the covenant of redemption means. It's what Ephesians 1.5 says when it says, having predestinated us. That's something God did. Somebody says, I've never heard about predestination. Well, read the Bible. It's in there. It's something that happened in the covenant. It simply means God prearranged your final destiny. You say, I don't like that. Well, you do that when you take a trip, don't you? You arrange your final destiny. You check the map. You determine where you're headed. You determine the best route to the goal. You make arrangements as to how much money you'll need to take with you and where you'll stop to get gas and how many times you'll have to stop and eat. You plan the trip. That's what predestination is. God prearranged your final destiny. Where are you going to end up, my beloved? My hope is this morning, and I think I have evidence to give me some blessed assurance that it's true. My hope is that my destination is heaven and that I will finally be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm more like Adam. I'm like fallen man, more like him than I am Christ. But there's something inside of me that loves the Lord and that uh, desires to do right. Even though I struggle with my old man, yet uh, I have reason to suspect that he's done a work of grace in me and that I will finally, in soul, body, and spirit, be conformed to the image of Christ. But all of that is due to the fact that he predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now somebody says this morning, preacher, Sounds like what you're saying is is God's will is the one that determines destiny. That's exactly what I'm saying. According to the good pleasure of his will. It's his sovereign will. And may I ask you this question? Had you rather your eternal happiness be in your fickle, fallible, frail hands or in the sovereign, capable hands of a God who's never done anything wrong? Which one? I'd rather my eternal happiness be in God's hands than my own because I drop things. I fumble the ball. My hands are frail, but I'm telling you, no man can pluck the sheep out of the good shepherd's hand. So what I'm saying is this covenant of redemption that God made before time will finally culminate in every last one of those that he loved and chose and gave to the Son. It'll finally culminate in their final transformation into the glorious image of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. All of his elect will be brought into his family, and Jesus Christ is the firstborn. He's the oldest brother among many brethren. God has a big family. And your salvation, my beloved, was anchored in the everlasting covenant before time began. So that when Jesus delivers the kingdom up to God, he won't say, Behold, I and most of the children which thou hast given me. Hebrews 2.13 says he'll say, Behold, I and the children, every last one of them which God gave him will be there. Not 98%, not even 99%, but 100% of those that he intended to save will be saved. That, my beloved, is good news. So what I'm saying is the everlasting covenant has eternal implications. And we learn about its various features via the covenants that he made with men in time. You learn, again, that based on the covenant he made with Abraham, that you learn something about the everlasting covenant, that it's a unilateral covenant. You learn through the covenant he made with David, 2 Samuel 23, 5, Psalm 89, that God will not go back on that promise. He will keep his word. You learn through the covenant he made with Noah in Isaiah 54, verse 9, that we are secure in the faithful promises of God. What I'm saying is the covenants that he made with men in time are not administrations of the everlasting covenant, but they are revelations of it. Now, that's a technical point, but I think it's important because a lot of folks that say, I believe in the covenants, think that these covenants with Abraham and Moses and David and Noah were means by which God is administrating the covenant of grace. In other words, he's saving people through keeping the law, and then he's going to save people through Abraham. Then he's... No, they're not administrations of the covenant of grace. They are revelations that bits and pieces of the everlasting covenant are revealed through these covenants he made with men. They foreshadow the various parts of this ultimate covenant called the covenant of grace. Okay, I've said all of that to say this. This will be where we close and I'll have to come back and look at the text more specifically because I don't want to leave this passage before we actually deal with what it says about God writing his law in our hearts being a God to us and we'll be his people and he'll forgive our sins and remember our iniquities against us no more. I want to talk about that next time, but here's what I want to say. How many covenants then, that's the question we asked earlier, has God made with men? A bunch, right? Adam, Noah, Abraham, uh, Moses, David, many covenants with men. And then he made a covenant with himself before time began, the everlasting covenant, before the world began. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace. But our text answers this question, how many covenants has God made? Like this, two. It calls it the old covenant, the first covenant, and the second. Verse 7 of Hebrews 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for the second. Two. But finding fault with them, God says, I'll make a new covenant. An old, now a new, two covenants. The old covenant is the law of Moses, right? The new is the gospel. The old covenant was given through Moses to the children of Israel at Sinai. The new covenant is given through Christ to all of God's children at Calvary. And you might ask, how are these two covenants similar, Brother Mike? Both are covenants of worship and service. 
That simply means that unlike the everlasting covenant, which is a covenant of redemption, neither the old covenant or the new covenant have eternal consequence. That is, they don't determine destiny. Instead, they prescribe an order of approach to God in worship and service. Through the law of Moses, there was a system of sacrifices and priests installed and a method of worship. They could approach God in worship through the animal sacrifice. It's a covenant of worship and service. In other words, rather than determining eternal destiny, the old and the new covenants are arrangements by which God has revealed himself to men and by which men may draw nigh to God in adoration, fellowship, and service. But how are these two covenants different, the old covenant and the new? They're both covenants of worship and service, but how are they different? Under the law, people worshiped and served God on the basis of their own works, their own obedience. Under grace, we worship and serve God not on the basis of how good we are and how consistent our track record is, but on the basis of what Christ has done for us, right? We approach God through the merits of Christ, not our own obedience. That's the thought in Hebrews chapter 8, when he's saying that under the new covenant, all of God's people, both Jews and Gentiles, may approach God, not on the basis of your works, and that's good news because I wouldn't have the right to be here this morning if it was on the basis of my works, but on the basis of Christ's meritorious obedience as my substitute, which is applied to our hearts in regeneration what verses 10 and 11 are talking about when he says I'll put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts that's a work in the inside of you and me this is a covenant not based on works but on grace therefore what I'm saying this morning is the new covenant by which we approach God in worship this morning is really the everlasting covenant it's the ultimate expression in time of the everlasting covenant that was made before time so that you and I may now enjoy the earnest of our inheritance through the gospel while we're in this world we can get a little heaven this side of heaven that's what the eighth chapter of hebrews is talking about when it talks about the new covenant of worship and service which is a covenant based on the work of christ not on the law of moses have you ever noticed how many songs we sing that talk about covenants 197, Solid Rock, says in verse 3, His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. When your world is full of troubles and storms and tempests, my beloved, here is your solid rock that God has made a covenant that cannot fail. There's a hymn we sing, "'Twas with an everlasting love that God His own elect embraced." Before he made the worlds above or earth on her huge columns placed. It's talking about the covenant. Or here's another one. Grace, tis a charming sound, says this. Grace first contrived the way to save rebellious man. That's talking about the covenant, isn't it? Grace first inscribed my name in God's eternal book. It's what God did before time began for you and for me. He's been blessing you a long time. He's had you in his mind a long time. And my friends, may I say, we have reason to approach him in worship and service today, saying, thank you, Lord, that it's not based on what a good person I am or how good I've lived my life, my works, my obedience, but it's based on what Jesus did for me at the cross. 
I come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ to worship and serve you. That's the new covenant, and it's the better covenant than what the children of Israel had under the law. Thank you.